0: All right, we've got a couple of announcements tonight. First of all, remember that this is the uh, primary runoff election week, this week. And then um, this is, uh, I think, next week, the 24th, is next Tuesday. So the election or voting day actually is Tuesday the 24th, but early voting started yesterday. So if you haven't voted yet, yet, you're late. A lot of people were there yesterday I, mean, I had to wait in line and um, watch out for people running in front of your car in the parking lot so there were it was it was a busy day yesterday down at the polls and I heard that that was true for today as well uh, I think that's a good sign so uh, the runoff is next Tuesday and the early voting is yesterday until Friday Second thing is Vacation Bible School is scheduled for July 19th to 21st, and so we're scheduling that uh, and focusing primarily on the younger kids. We have a lot of younger kids, and some of the older kids that are 11, 10, 11, 12 are volunteering to help teach the younger ones, so that's just really a great, uh, a great thing that, um, that they're doing there. So that's just, uh, that's just tremendous. And then uh, also be in prayer for Camp Arete. What are your dates, Jeff? July uh, 17th to the 23rd. Okay, so same time as Vacation Bible School. 17th to the 23rd, rough, roughly overlapping there. Um, so uh, pray for both of those, uh, those events. Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we begin this evening, we will make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study the word, focus on the eternal truth of Scripture, and so if necessary, we'll. Uh, have uh, silent prayer. So if necessary, you can have time to confess sin, make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are our very present help in time of trouble. As we look out into the world around us, we see trouble in various places, uh, especially here at home. We have such a conflict in this country. We have a major division because part of the country is still operating on a biblical worldview, and so many are operating on a... Uh, on the devil's view, the world's view. And many of those are uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. They're pastors who are indeed wolves in sheep's clothing. They are congregations and churches that uh, claim to be biblical and Christian when they are not. And they are deceiving uh, enormous numbers of believers. And Father, we, we do pray that you would uh, just give opportunities to the pastors who are teaching the truth and who are trying to uh, train and equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, who are seeking to uh, take your word and do exactly what you uh, tell us to do. Father, we pray for our uh, time together this evening, as we see that that so often the thinking of the world uh, just infiltrates our our own soul, and we need to uh, root that out, identify it, and be able to uh, apply your word. So, Father, open our eyes to our own situations this evening as we learn your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're back into our study in Judges, and we're looking at the, this theme of compromise with the world system. So we want to start, I want you to open your Bibles, not to Judges, but to Romans 12, 2. And we'll look at a couple of passages in uh, in, in the New Testament, Romans 12 and James 4, before we go back to our passage in Judges. But the New Testament gives us a framework for understanding of uh, the narrative. And one of the important things when we study Scripture is The Old Testament is filled with narrative stories, uh, and the stories don't tell you what to do. Stories are never prescriptive. By that, you don't go to a story to get doctrine. This is one of the problems that there are in in numerous uh, denominations and uh, sect, Christian sects, is that they don't handle the stories uh, as stories. The stories are illustration of prescriptive literature, which comes in the epistles, which tells us what to think, how to think, what to do, and the illustrations of the failures to do what is prescribed in the New Testament are the illustrations that we see in the Old Testament. And so this episode tonight that we're going to focus on in Judges 6, 25 to 35, where uh, Gideon is going to be told to uh, go go to his father's house, go home, and tear down the altar to the Baal. And the Asherah tree uh, is is an, illustrated by these two important passages in in the New Testament that talk about our relationship as believers uh, to the world system. So we see that in Judges, just to review, that the problem here is the paganization of the people, the paganization of the priests, the paganization of the leadership, that once the compromise with the worldview of the Canaanites with their religious systems begins to take hold among the Jews They they just go through a collapse, and it goes through stage after stage after stage. We see the same thing historically in this country. It's taken about 200 years to reach where we are, but it's important to understand how we got where we are and what the characteristics of where we are are so that we can properly apply Scripture. And that's the passage that we're starting with in Romans 12.2. Romans 12, 2, and this is my translation, uh, do not be pressed into the mold of the spirit of the age. Uh, The familiar translation is don't be conformed to the world. But the English word world, uh, God loved the world. There it's talking about the inhabited world. Other places, the world is the geographical world. But in a lot of places, as we'll see in the next couple of verses, that, that Greek word for world is talking about the philosophical and religious ideas uh, that characterize the cultures around the world. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the word ionos, which primarily has the idea of an age or time period So it relates to the predominant ideas that characterize that time period. So you could go back, and we we won't go back very far, let's say about 100 years ago, and you can see that there were certain ideas that were shaping the way Americans thought. For example, by the end of the 19th century, the ideas of progressivism were always bearing fruit. Progressivism had a secular as well as a religious idea of post millennialism post millennialism is the view that that Jesus comes after or post after the kingdom, so the church will bring in the kingdom, and that was its its um, theological orientation from the mid seventeen uh, hundreds under uh, pastors, theologians like like Jonathan Edwards and his sort of his proteges, and that introduced this postmodern. But it became secularized. So postmillennialism becomes secularized, and it becomes identified with sort of a national fervor in the United States. So that you get this confusion where people see with manifest destiny and the expanse of, of America that America is going to bring in the kingdom. And the kingdom moves from being a, a messianic kingdom to being a utopic secular kingdom. And so these ideas of a utopia began to creep in by the Second Great Awakening. A lot of people in the Second Great Awakening were post-mill and you're bringing in the kingdom, and you can bring in the kingdom because men are basically good, and so they can create a basically good kingdom. And by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, it's been totally secularized by liberalism. And so you see a, this shift that is taking place. And then World War I occurs, and the post-millennial utopianism of European liberalism, the optimism that that brought died on the fields of Flanders. I mean, the, the modern war with machine guns and tanks and uh, the massive artillery that they had and, and, and the attacks using uh, various uh, gases, gas attacks, and everything was just so horrible, left people so maimed that, that they destroyed the optimism of 19th century liberalism and then you just get this strange period in the 20s the roaring 20s where people are just there was so much death in the decade before now it it's it's all about uh just experiencing life and having having a great time and in fact America would have gone full bore into the uh some of the utopian ideas that were present in Europe already at that time if it weren't for the Depression and then World War II. And the, the 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 suffering, the adversity of the depression was such that it shut down all that all all that frivolity of the of the Roaring Twenties. And it it postponed the shift to postmodernism in America about thirty years. So that it doesn't really hit in America till the late 50s and early 60s, and that that was a that that's a significant thing, and so so we we didn't experience it. Europe was experiencing postmodernism and the ex, starting to experience the extremes of moral relativism in the 20s, but the, America was you know was going getting ready to go that way when all of a sudden. Uh, the Depression hit. So the ideas of the 1800s are bearing fruit in the early 1900s. And the Christianity that dominated was modernistic Christianity, which, I mean, if you really want to understand it, the book to read is Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen, who is a, a theologian and Greek professor at Princeton Seminary, he nails it. I had it as a required reading in my uh, uh, course on American Church History that I taught in the fall, and nearly every student made some comment, said, "This is a great book. It could have been written yesterday, and everybody in our churches ought to read this book. It gives you great insight." And, um, and, it, and it truly does, but it showed that the, the, this conflict between the culture now, you, before the early 1800s, we had a strong Judeo-Christian and Bible-based culture. By the end of the 19th century, it, it, it has a facade. It's, it's not really there, and that, that is showing what that was the spirit of the age and it's people were being pressed into that mold that even if they might be saved and they might have some modicum of biblical understanding they're they're reinterpreting it within this progressive liberal christian framework and that's what what happened so romans 12:2 says don't be pressed into the mold of the spirit of the age we have to understand what the characteristics of the spirit of the age are so that we can not get pressed into that mold. If you don't understand that the mold today is, is extreme postmodern liberal relativism, then you're going to pick up all kinds of ideas, and it's really what's really become popular is Marxism and socialist ideas that are packaged under other terms and other names, and people lie and say, oh, it's not Marxist. Uh, and then they'll turn right around and say, well, you know, nobody, nobody else ever really tried it before. But we can do it because we're smarter than anybody in the past. And so arrogance always produces a collapse. But they, they've forgotten all of those things. So the, uh, kids need to understand this because it's just being fed to them in many different ways as they're growing up in in there's better schools and worse schools, but it's just everywhere so we 're not to be pressed into the mold of the spirit of the age, but instead, contrast, we as believers are to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking, and we live in a world since the really since the end of the nineteenth century where where you, there's a shift to emotion. In fact, it goes back, the, the seeds of that really go back to the beginning of the 19th century with, with a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher who's considered the, uh, the father of modern liberalism because he said we can't accept the Bible as having anything valid to communicate to us. It's just a bunch of myths and legends. So what, what's important is that we have a, an emotional Experience with, with the divine, whatever that is. But that's it. It shifts to emotion. It has an impact on music. There's this uh, emotionalism that comes along. It's evidenced in romanticism, in the music, and in literature, and in the arts. And, and so this, this creates a, uh, a focal point where people are making decisions and living more and more on the basis of emotion. So that's part of the spirit of the of that age. So we're to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. And thinking and rationality under the authority of God's word is now what should be characterizing the Christian's life. But that is so contrary to what the culture is saying. And if you listen carefully, you will hear that the, the illogic and the irrationality of so many statements. I mean, how rational is it to say that uh, if you have uh, male uh, chromosomes, that, that you can look in the mirror and say you're really a woman? And that that uh, biology has nothing to do with gender. Now, that's not rational. I have people ask me all the time, say, would you explain this to me? And I say, well, point number one an explanation is based on logic and reason, and what they're doing is irrational, and therefore you cannot get a logical explanation for irrationality. They're just, they're, they're, they're no longer playing by anybody's rules except whatever uh, seems to make them smile at, at, at that moment. So for the Christian, we're going to stand out, and that's not going to be liked by the world. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you also. And so we have to be prepared for that. There are some states and some nations that during the COVID pandemic demonstrated a a bizarre and unexpected hostility to Christianity. Canada, our neighbor to the north, some states like New York and um, California, Washington State, Oregon, just went off the off the rails and and the vitriol that was expressed by a lot of people even even recently uh, just the anger and hatred without any knowledge or facts whatsoever directed towards towards Christians we have to be renewed in our thinking we're going to think differently that means we're going to have to understand how to think. That's called methodology, okay? And methodology isn't neutral. That's one of the lies in the devil's world is that how you do what you do doesn't matter as long as the end result is right. But a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And I remember when I was in seminary, Randy Price... Tommy, I, myself, a few others constantly seem to be battling issues related to uh, uh, related to methodology. And you have methodology in how you do Sunday school, methodology in how you do evangelism, methodology in how you do church. You know, the big difference between what we do at West Houston Bible Church and other doctrinal churches and what takes place in The vast majority of of churches in this country isn't necessarily a doctrinal difference. It's doctrinal in some some areas in some ways. But I hear people all the time go, oh, I'm going to go visit this church. I just moved to this area. Their doctrinal statement is good. Yeah, but their methodology contradicts all of their doctrine. Their philosophy of ministry contradicts all of their doctrine. They've never put the two together, and they're doing... A, a, a right thing, a wrong way. And the, they think that entertainment is is the way to do good at good uh, evangelism. So we have to recognize that this, this is a major problem. Um, Sunday, th- this was published Sunday in the Washington Examiner, and uh, one of my good friends, who's a faithful listener, sent this to me. And I want to read a couple of things from here. It's titled, America's Church Leaders Are Now Wolves in Shepherds' Clothing. And it fits right in with what I've been covering in Ephesians for the last uh, couple of months. He starts off, and I think it's important, I want to say a couple of things here because it sets the stage for what he will say later. He says, American culture is unraveling. Few would argue otherwise. Whether you stand on the right or the left of the political divide, we all seem to agree on one thing something is desperately wrong. Kind of reminds me of a text conversation I had with some friends yesterday, and one guy's fairly optimistic about where the fall elections may go. And I said, well, we live in the devil's world. Don't get overly optimistic. And he cited a survey that said, 75% of Americans think we're headed in the wrong direction. And I said, yeah, well, 35% of them want us to go more Marxist. So <laughs> just because 75% don't think we're going in the right direction that doesn't bring any comfort. It doesn't tell us which direction they think we should go. And that's what's happening. So this article says... Uh, the United States has become the divided states. E pluribus unum has become ex uno pluris. out of one many. Where we were once a diverse people coming together in a common cause, we now seem to be a fractured country with no social and moral glue to hold us together. That's because the social and moral glue that held this country together from 1776 to about 1900 was the Word of God. And once you take that away, it just fragments, just like we're seeing in Judges. He goes on to say, "...a nation that just yesterday taught its progeny the value of axioms such as give me liberty or give me death now responds to a 99% survivable health crisis with I fear death so everyone should lose their liberty." We're self-refuting at every turn. Feminists deny the biological fact of the female. Misogynists march with Me Too. Children advocates advocate for the right to kill children. Proponents of prenatal health are now apologists for perinatal death. The world is upside down. How did we get in this mess? That's the important question. Dr. Lynn Munsell president of Arizona Christian University recently shared, quote, a large number of American pastors do not possess a biblical worldview. According to the latest findings from the American Worldview Inventory 2022 conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, in fact, just slightly more than a third 37% of pastors in America have a biblical worldview. Think about that. 37%. The majority, 62%, embrace a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. Can we say Gideon? Can we say Israel at the time of the judges? Among senior pastors... Okay, and the way they break this down, senior I'd probably be classified as a senior pastor even though we don't have assistant pastors. You have senior pastors and then associate pastors. And in some churches, they'll call them teaching pastors if they have elders, so they'll have teaching elders. And then children and youth pastors. He says, according to their research, among senior pastors, only 41%, four out of 10, have a biblical worldview. Four out of ten. The next highest is 28% among associate pastors. Associate pastors are the ones who in the next few years will move up to be senior pastors. 28% have a biblical worldview. Fewer than half as many teaching pastors. 13% of teaching pastors have a biblical worldview. And children's and youth pastors, it's 12%. Executive pastors only have a 4% consistent worldview. That means 96% of them are pagan. You wonder why we have problems. Munsell concludes, our research measured biblical understanding across eight key worldview categories and found that for seven of the eight categories, a minority of pastors possess a biblical worldview worldview. The lowest of all is a category that might have been expected to top the list. Okay, so eight categories. The, the category that most of us would expect would be at the top of the list, beliefs and behaviors related to the Bible, truth, and morality. Only 39% of pastors possess a biblical worldview in that area. Beliefs and behaviors related to the Bible, truth, and morality. Four out of ten pastors do not have a biblical worldview of truth or of morality. Only 41% of American senior pastors have a biblical worldview, and the numbers drop like a rock in water for the rest of the church staff. He says later, The inerrancy, authenticity, and authority of the Bible together with the corollary of self-evident truths grounded in natural law, that is the objectivity of God's revelation to man, is now panned as racism and bigotry at your local church and your local Christian school. These people have been worshiping the creation rather than the creator for so long that they can't think their way out of a paper bag any longer. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they truly have been given over to a reprobate mind. That's where we are. It's just like the time of the judges. So the the key biblical warning or commandment is not to be pressed into the mold of the spirit of the age, but to be transformed by the renewing of your thinking that you're, you may demonstrate through your life, you demonstrate you're on evidence, you're on your part of the trial related to the angelic revolt. And in your life, you demonstrate that God's will is good and acceptable and complete. So this is the issue, is not being pressed into the spirit of the age. Now, the contrast here is really terminology you're all familiar with, human viewpoint versus, uh, versus divine viewpoint. Now, I want you to turn to James chapter 1. Turn over to James chapter 1. Critical verse and a critical term that's used in James 1. And Gideon is, an, is the example, his family is the example of this word. James 1.5, a verse many of us are familiar with. If any of you lacks wisdom, the context is when you encounter various trials. You need biblical wisdom to correctly handle the test or the temptation. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. God is gracious and kind, and it will be given to him. But there's a condition. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, that is the one who doubts, and is driven and tossed by the wind. What does that remind you of? Driven and tossed by the wind. Ephesians, Sunday morning, the verse coming up this Sunday, children don't and not to be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So he's a double-minded man and the word there in the Greek is dysukos, di meaning two and suke for soul. He's two-souled, he's he's double-minded, he's got he's of two minds. You know, he's learning some doctrine, but he he's been so conformed to the world that he's constantly And and, in a state of instability, that's what it's like to be a, a, a baby believer. He's unstable in all of his ways. What brings about that instability? Remember, it's a conflict between the divine viewpoint that he should be learning, but in churches that are pastored by the men we just learned about in that survey, they're not getting any truth. They're getting a lot of emotion. They're getting a lot of entertainment, but they're not getting any truth. If they get truth, it's just, you know, the common truisms uh, uh, that the world produces. This word disukas is used one other time in Scripture, and that's also by James. It's in James 4.8, but we have to have the context of 4.8. In James 4.4, James gets to the heart of the problem in this early congregation. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Now, he's not saying that he's not using those terms in a literal fashion. He's not saying they're all involved in, you know, group sex or partying or whatever the terms are that they use. Uh, He is saying that they're unfaithful to God. Same way this, these words were used in the Old Testament to describe those who are not worshiping the one and only God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're, they're going after the, the uh, false gods. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world, that's human viewpoint, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Those are harsh, strong statements that when we are going along with the, what the world is comfortable with, that is hostility toward God. And who, then he concludes whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, you want to be comfortable. You want to have the opinions and views of the world that you can be a gender bender, you can. Uh, You can go along with socialism, find all of these things in the Bible because then it doesn't make you look strange or weird or like some extreme right-wing hothead. If you want to be a friend of the world, you're making yourself an enemy with God. Those are the options. You know, based on that survey that I just read about, how many Christians in this country are enemies of God? because they're friends of the world. They're just not taught anything, and so they've just gone in the completely wrong direction. The solution is what James emphasizes in James 4.8. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Doesn't say anything about having to clean up your life, change your life, doing this or that or the other thing. Then he uses the metaphor, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And to a Jewish audience, that was very clear. That's the idea of, of cleansing so that you can go worship God in the temple. It has to do with washing your hands and is a picture of confession of sins. Uh, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Who? You double-minded. Those of you who are who have both feet firmly planted in the leftism, the liberalism, the... Uh, Marxism, socialism, um, Me Too movements, all these other uh, Black Lives Matter, Marxism and socialism, your feet are firmly planted there, you're double-minded. You have conformed to the world. These are not biblical ideas. What's it call for? It calls for confession of sin and getting back in, into the Word. So what we learn from this is that a double-minded man is someone who has a soul filled with a lot of human viewpoint thinking. And let me tell you, we can't judge anybody because when you got saved, that's how all of us were. Now, I don't know how much human viewpoint thinking I had as a six-year-old, but whatever I had, it was all human viewpoint. Because when you're not saved, it's all human viewpoint. And so you may be a good kid, an obedient kid. Your parents may have taught you some manners and discipline, but, but you're still just a, as pagan as you can be. That's what, that's what human viewpoint thinking is. It is the opposite of divine viewpoint. So when you get divine viewpoint, divine viewpoint expresses God's thinking on any subject, any value. Any way or method of thinking or making decisions or evaluating situations in life, I intentionally picked things that were mental activities because we're to renew our thinking. Uh, any Thinking on any subject, any value, what's right, what's wrong, are there things that are right or wrong, are there moral absolutes? Any way or method of thinking, it's how you think, not just what you think. If you think like a mystic, then you're going to have problems because you're letting experience interpret the Bible rather than the Bible interpret experience. And that's always going to lead to subjectivity and mysticism. So you, it's how we think. We have to learn how to think biblically and let the Bible be our authority. Uh, making decisions. Making decisions many Christians make decisions on wrong bases. Now, we're going to get into decision-making in the next couple of lessons because we're going to get into uh, Gideon's putting out the fleece, and that's taught by so many people to have something to do with learning God's will, and it's it's really about avoiding God's will. And then evaluating situations in life, being able to make wise decisions— in what may appear to be complex situations. So we can also call this way of thinking wisdom, which is a good biblical word used in the wisdom literature, in the Psalm, wisdom Psalms and Proverbs, and or it's truth. Truth is personified in the Bible. It's not just some sort of abstract philosophical system like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle developed. It's personal. Jesus said, I am the truth. It's personal. It's grounded in the person of God. So when he says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, he's not just talking about academic knowledge. So that's the only basis for stability. When you're not basing it on divine viewpoint, James 1 says that this... this uh, Double-minded man is unstable, undependable in all of his ways. The only source of divine viewpoint, therefore, is the Bible, the Word of God, which is called the thinking, the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. The only way we can know the thinking of Christ is to know the Word of God. That's why all of you are here Tuesday night, Thursday night. You want to know the Word of God so your soul is saturated with it. But that's rare in Christianity today we all remember times uh, where you were, if you were going to a Bible church of almost any kind, you would have half the church there and during a midweek service for Bible teaching and for prayer meeting. Not so today there di- there's some sociological and demographic factors there because in a big city like Houston too many and with uh, the demands on employment; too many people just can't make it. But thankfully, we have um, we have the internet now, and so many people can log on, and they do, and they get solid Bible teaching all week long. Second thing about this is that, in contrast, divine view to, in contrast to human viewpoint, divine viewpoint produces skillful living, inner joy happiness, tranquility, and stability. That's just the opposite of the world. And the world system today runs on feelings. It runs on emotion. It runs on the opinions of fallible human beings. And human viewpoint will always lead to instability, failure, self-induced misery, because human viewpoint is always based on arrogance. Think about that. You're either basing your life on humility and in James 4 talks about humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So you're either going to build your life on humility and grace orientation or you're going to be building your life on arrogance. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. And when we build our lives on arrogance, we're saying, I know more than God. I know better than God. Man becomes the measure And it's what is known as modern secular humanism is a great example of one form of that. And God's word's not the measure. It's not what God's word says. And the root problem in this world is that every one of us develops. We grow up. We're born in the devil's world. We're born in the world system. We're educated by people who are immersed in the world system, uh, some more than others because many of us had Christian parents, Many of us had had teachers who were uh, solid believers, and therefore what went on in their classroom was a reflection of their uh, walk with the Lord. And I was grateful that in many cases I had teachers who were believers, and I always knew the ones who weren't. It's not so easy anymore. And so as we've seen in our study in Judges up to this point, the conflict... And Israel was between divine viewpoint as expressed in the Mosaic law and the human viewpoint of the perverse paganism of the Canaanite culture, which had uh, substituted a fertility worship for the worship of the true God of creation. And so as we go through judges, one of the things that uh, I've had this conversation with several people recently is that that what you see is a polemic. A polemic is is an argument or a debate to show that something is wrong. And a lot of people don't like to be polemical. You know, they want to know, I want to know the positive things that the Bible says and not the negative. What's interesting is one of the pastors on Friday morning uh, has been sort of a functioning assistant pastor for about, I don't know, maybe 20 years and the pastor of the church where he has been serving has reached an age where he can't function anymore as the pastor. And so this younger man, who's got a lot of maturity and a lot of study in his background, has become the pastor. And he, he's heard me teach on the fact that almost every page of the Bible is a polemic. It is an argument that puts down unbelievers. It puts down human viewpoint. It shows how the paganism of the Old Testament was horrible. It's always showing God is good and these false gods are demons. There's no in-between. And people who worship false gods are following demons. And anybody who isn't following Jesus is going to the lake of fire. I mean, these are absolutes. And let me tell you, modern man does not want to hear that. They don't want to hear polemics from the pulpit. I've had people not come to church, oh, you you know, you're just always talking about what's wrong with everybody else. That's how you learn what to think with discernment. But they don't want to hear that. And what I believe, I don't know for sure, but in most cases, they're compromised in so many ways to keep their high-paying jobs that they don't want to hear that they've compromised with the devil's world but that's that's where it leads if you want to go get along go along to get along because that's going to keep your job and you're going to turn a blind eye to the fact that you have to enforce policies related to gender neutrality and a, a whole host of other things But you're just, well, you know, I've got to pay the bills. I've got to pay the mortgage. You've compromised. You're worshiping a form of fertility religion, a form of prosperity theology. To pay your bills, you're going to overlook the paganism that's there. Now, it may not be easy to work your way out of one job into another job. I'm not saying you just walk in and turn in your papers one day and just say, well, God's going to provide something but people need to be aware of this and and it's in a lot of it's in the culture of so many companies and we've seen that you know a lot of fortune 500 companies in the last 3 years really showed where they where their values are and the Christians that are there are are clearly in a conflict because they're being forced in some cases to validate and enforce policies that that they're not comfortable with because they know at the root they're wrong. So this is the conflict that we're seeing here. Fundamental to the Mosaic Law, which began with the uh, prelude of the Ten Commandments, we have the first commandment. What does God say? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he identifies who he is as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Exodus, the God who brought them out of slavery, and then his first command because it's foundational to all of the other 612 commands in the Mosaic law. You shall have no other gods before me. If you compromise there, the rest of it really doesn't work well it leads to instability it's interesting that in judges six we started off judges six one b talks about their sin judges six six one a rather talks about the sin of the israelites and this children of israel did evil in the sight of the lord and doing evil in the sight of the Lord is a way of, dis- of saying they became idolatrous. That phrase is used time and time again through the Old Testament to describe a group of people that have wor- gone over to the dark side and worshiping idols. So that's what they're doing. That's their sin. So they're going to get disciplined for it. But that's their disobedience. And then from uh, 1b down through uh, 6 we have the, the discipline. And then from 7 on to the end of, really to the end of chapter 9, we have, um, we have God's grace in delivering them. But when God is preparing to call a deliverer, he first sends a prophet. And we look at verses 8 through 10. What, is, what does he say? How does he announce himself? Verse 8, that says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. Where do you get that language? He pulled it right out of Exodus 20, 2 and 3. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. That is That identifies who God is. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. And... Also, I said to you, verse ten, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's the indictment. Now, just to remind you a little bit about what happened at the beginning of the book, in the summary, Genesis, I mean Judges two one, then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and said. I led you up from Egypt. No, how many times God tells them I'm the one who led. There is no other God before me. I alone am the Lord. Sometimes the Hebrew uses different words and different phrases, but they all mean the same thing. There is no other God beside me. I alone am God. And I'd like to find out a way to come up with with a list of how many times God asserts that. It's at least... 50 50 times. And it's said again and again in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He identifies himself and he says, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Of course, they broke that. You shall tear down their altars. What's he going to tell Gideon to do? Tear down the altar of Baal. Cut down the Asherah tree. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. And we really see that Gideon's home life, his father was some sort of you know, city, regional aristocrat that the local Baal temple and the local Asherah tree is in his front yard. This is where they're coming to do all their fertility religious perversions. And so Gideon is, has bought into this with everybody else and Yahweh is not... The Lord alone for them. And so the Lord says, I told you to tear down their altars and not to make a covenant with them, but you haven't obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a trap for you. Then you skip down to verse ten. We saw that when all the generation had been gathered to the fathers, that's Joshua's generation. Another generation rose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work that He had done for Israel. And then what did the children of Israel do? They did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Evil is defined as idolatry. They've enslaved themselves to the Baals, the thunder gods, the gods of rain, and you get rain in an agricultural society. What happens? The grain grows, the fruit trees grow, all the vegetables grow, and you have a great crop, and you have prosperity. So these people in the charismatic camp that came up with prosperity theology, they just reached back and picked up another version of the devil's lie from the Old Testament. They served the Baals and they forsook, or they abandoned, the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. Deuteronomy tells us they're demons. They bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook Yahweh and served Baal. So here is a uh, figure of Baal from uh, Ugarit, which is in northwest Syria, that was discovered uh, earlier in the 20th century, you have uh, another statue here. I think you can see it pretty—you see it better there than you can on my computer. Uh, he is holding a lightning bolt up at the very top. That he is going to—he's uh, the god of thunder and lightning and rain. And um, this—he's got. Well, wait, wait a minute. That's a mace. I can't see it well. It's a mace up here, and then it's a lightning. This is lightning on this side. So this is the cycle. They're going to disobey, and they're going to go after the false gods and compromise with human viewpoint thinking to get along, and then they're going to uh, turn to God as a result of the discipline he brings, and then God will deliver them, and that cycle just goes on. So in Gideon, we are now in this deliverance cycle, but God is just commissioning them. I ran across a couple of pictures I thought were helpful. It talked about how the uh, Israelites were hiding in the caves. Well, here are a couple of pictures from different areas around Israel where there are lots of caves. This one here is in the uh, Arbel, Mount Arbel Cliffs, which if you've been to um, Gennesaret, we stayed a few times near there at the, at the um, uh, a place down by the ancient boat, And you can see a great view of Mount Arbel, and this is where uh, these caves are, so people hid out there. The location for where Gideon is is Ophrah, which is here in the Valley of Jezreel, Herod Spring we'll talk about later, but that's the area. So in Judges 16, God said, "'I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice.'" What's the theme here? You have not obeyed my voice. You don't listen to the word. You are not following divine viewpoint, only human viewpoint. 6.14, we looked at last time. This is the commissioning of Gideon. Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And it's not a question, have I not sent you, which would be a rhetorical question emphasizing the fact that God has sent him. But it's more of a statement based on how that similar similar phrase is used in Exodus 4 when God tells Moses, I have sent you. So we have uh, the picture of the valiant warrior at the beginning beating out the wheat. Some of this is pictured in uh, here in the... Um, uh, paintings. This looks like it would be in uh, one of the tombs down the Valley of the Kings. And here's a picture of a uh, 19th century uh, farmer with his bulls. Now, this is important because Gideon's going ready to take two bulls to tear down the temple. And he's just uh, threshing. So these are piles of wheat. I like the old black and white pictures because that was in the late 19th century, a lot closer to what it was like in the a time of Gideon, and we see these these various uh, threshing floor uh, pictures and what they were doing. Okay, so he's been commissioned by the Lord, and the Lord clearly says in verse 16, and the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man. It's, it's very clear. And then... Gideon begins to realize, slowly dawning on him who this is, and so he's going to bring a sacrifice uh, to God, and he's going to go back and he's going to get a goat. He's got to skin the goat, eviscerate the goat, prepare the goat, the unleavened bread, put it in a basket, make broth and soup, cooking it. All of this takes time. Here's a baby goat, like he would have he would have taken. I like to use pictures like this. First time I saw a goat sacrifice, it was so moving. Now, a lot of you wouldn't like that. But it makes you realize when the scriptures are talking about the, the, the unblemished, spotless lamb of God, and you look in the eyes of this creature, this critter that's never done anything to you, realize you have to take a knife and slit its throat. That is a profound spiritual reality because you realize that there was nothing, that lamb did not deserve this, neither did the lamb of God. We're so distanced from this in an urban environment. So these are various pictures of what, of an Arab preparing the goat to be able to cook it and make the meal, uh, making the unleavened bread. And so as we were finishing up last time, the angel of the Lord tells him to do all of these things and then takes his staff, touches the meat and the unleavened bread, and it all just, the rock springs forth fire and burns up the offering. That's an Ola offering. And then again, Gideon's eyes are opened a little more, and he realizes this is the angel of the Lord. He thinks he's going to die, but the Lord promises him, don't fear, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. And then the writer says, look, it's still there. If you want to go check it out, this is my footnote. And verse 25 we read, now it came to pass the same night. So later that night, The Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. The wooden image beside it is the Asherah pole. So he's got to tear down the altar of Baal, which is what they were told to do to begin with, and and cut down the Asherah tree. Now, what's weird here is how many bulls are there? It looks like there are two: your father's young bull, and then a second bull of seven years old. Seven-year-old bull is not a young bull. And you think, okay, well, you need two bulls to pull down this altar because it could be quite sizable. But the Hebrews are a little different; it's awkward. So it's probably a best translation, take the bull of the cattle. That's a weird phrase, but it probably emphasizes you're taking the prime bull. That's the bull of seven years. You're taking the the best bull in your father's herd. Uh, And then some translate it the bull that is seven years old. But there's another way to translate that word. It's an odd construction. And he says, destroy the altar to Baal, which is your father's, cut down the Asherah pole. So he's going to take these two bulls, and we have a photo here of men plowing nearby that same area in the Jezreel Valley. Here's a relief from the palace of Sennacherib of two bulls. And then here is a statue of a storm god that was uh, discovered up in uh, the area which was would have been the Hittite area at that time. And so he's going to pull, pull this down. And then he's going to build an altar to the Lord God on top of that other one. He's going to completely destroy it. And this shows the, the authority and power of God over the false gods. It's another polemic. You know, it's what you see when you go to Jerusalem. If, you're, if you could get into the Dome of the Rock, nobody, no Christians have been allowed in in 20-something years. But if you look, you go online, you look for photos, pictures of the Arabic that's on the inside of the Dome of the Rock. They are all verses that are rejecting the deity of Christ, ridiculing the virgin birth, Uh, They're blasphemous, and they're polemical. The Muslims hate us. You will not find too many people who will ever point that out or who even know that. But there's nothing peaceful about Islam, and there's certainly nothing peaceful about the Dome of the Rock. It is an abomination before God because it promotes idolatry. So here is a, a statue of the storm god I bumped that got ahead. So Gideon takes 10 men from among his servants does as the Lord said to him and because he feared his father's household he knows that what he's doing is going to be rejected by everybody in town. He will become public enemy number 1 and it's a death penalty for taking down this altar, tearing down this altar. So he does it at night. So the next morning when the men of the city come up, there's, they find it's just been devastated. The altar of Baal's been all torn down. The Asherah pole has been cut down. And they've offered the bull of the herd, the prime bull of the herd, on the altar that they built there. Now here's a couple of pictures of Canaanite altars. Here's one at Hatzor. And so they were large. This is not something small, not an individual altar, because everybody in the village would come out to his father's uh, place, and that's where they would worship and have their uh, perverse parties. So this, they would have to, you'd have to use these bulls to pull down all these stones and, and level it. And this is a picture of uh, the, uh, it's made from wood, and it is an asherah tree. And it's uh, sort of a perverse way of looking at the tree of life. And so you have uh, various uh, fertility images uh, on on here. And so there's going to be the burnt offering that's going to purify this new temple. And so when the men of the city rose early, uh, Baal, the altar is torn down, the Asherah is cut down, and they say to one another, who's done this? And when they inquired and were told, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing, then the men, men of the city called call his father and say, you have to bring your son out here, and we need to execute him. This is a capital crime. And so they, they're going to, this is another picture of an altar. Now, this is an interesting one. I just threw the. I saw this, I just threw it in here. That is the altar. It's not the original. The original is in the Jerusalem Museum, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And this is the temple at Arad. Now, we went to Arad on the first trip, and a few people um, here might have gone to that. But what I always laugh about with this is that that in um, uh, back in the early 80s, uh, a team of archaeologists was uh, excavating here. And Randy Price was there and his wife, Beverly, and they just had their first baby, Elizabeth, and she would change Elizabeth's diaper on the altar. And so that altar is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, which has signs all around, says, do not touch, you know, don't cross the line. And Beverly told me this story, and she laughs every time she goes through because she always remembers changing her baby's diapers on that altar. So Joash Joash realizes what his son has done and is going to back him up. Verse 31, Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar is torn down. In other words, he's being polemical here. He's saying, you think Baal is God? Let him come and defend himself. This reminds me so much of Elijah and the uh, priests of of, uh, of Baal and the priests of the Asherah up there, and they're dancing around and cutting themselves and trying to get uh, Baal to respond and to send a lightning bolt to, to incinerate this sacrifice. And Elijah's making fun of him See, Americans don't like that because we don't think you ought to make fun of somebody's religion. But that's because we don't believe there's absolute truth in religion. So we have to accept everybody's religion as as valid. But God doesn't. And the prophets of God didn't. They ridiculed people who believed in these false gods. They made fun of them. Now, I'm not saying you need to do that. But we need to lighten up a little bit and realize we don't have to be all that sensitive uh, to unbelievers because we have the truth. But so many Christians have compromised, and they're just scared to death to tell anybody that Jesus said, I'm the only way to heaven, and you'd better believe it. So on that day, they gave Jeroboam a new name, gave Gideon a new name, Jeroboam, which means to plead against Baal because he had torn down, torn down his altar. So that brings us down to, what? where is that? Verse 32. 33, we start getting introduced to what is going to happen with the Midianites. So we'll start there, that all the Midianites and Amalekites and people of the east uh, gathered together and crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So what... That's where we're going to start next time as Gideon is going to put the army together. God's going to bring him together, and then he's going to cut him down to 300. I ran across a great quote some time ago and found it today by Martin Luther writing about Gideon going up against the Midianites with only 300. He said, how difficult it was for Gideon to fight the enemy at those odds. If I had been there, I would have messed in my breeches for fright. Martin Luther always had a way with words. Father, thank you for our opportunity to come together to think through these things because not one of us escapes the problem of compromise with the world system. We constantly have to be on guard to not be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world system around us. We have to be biblical. We have to stand on your word and we cannot compromise. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the areas where we compromise in our thinking, give us the courage to deal with it biblically, and to continue to press forward by taking in your word and living and thinking on its basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.